Jerry O'Hanlon, and you're a former Jesuit provincial here in Ireland and you're a theologian also. And we're, I'm speaking to you after the summit that the Pope called the Extraordinary Summit on uh, Child Protection and Clerical Sexual Abuse and the cover-ups. Your reaction to both the summit, well, first of all, your reaction to the summit. Yeah, as far as I could see, you're always looking at it a bit from a distance, but as far as I could see, the big success of the summit was the naming of the issue in the way that it was named and the sense that out of that will come cultural change. So what I mean by that is I often think of our own situation in Ireland and in other parts of the English-speaking world where this issue arose first. There's a book by L.P. Hartley, The Go-Between, and he starts it by saying, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. And if you think back to the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, this abuse was going on, but it wasn't spoken about. With rare exceptions, Michael Viney in the Irish Times did something in the 60s. It was a rare exception. And when something, for whatever reason, isn't spoken about, you can't deal with it. So there's some cultural thing there around denial. And it's terribly important to break that. And in Ireland, we we thank mainly, I'd say, the media, the secular media for doing that. And I think in many parts of the world, that culture of denial still exists, not just in the Catholic Church, but certainly in the Catholic Church. And so in parts of the world like Africa, like uh, India, South America, Malaysia, there is that sense that this issue hasn't been taken on board. It isn't talked about. And so when you had all these heads of hierarchies from all over the world and cardinals gathered and they were addressed by victims and survivors, giving their own harrowing experiences and the effect that that had had on themselves and on their families. When you had a Nigerian sister standing up just a few yards away from the Pope and asking the bishops why they were so mediocre, why they were so hypocritical, in very, very straight kind of language. That seems to me to be very hopeful because that puts the issue on the agenda. And you could see from the responses of people, some people going in were saying this is not our issue, but coming out they were saying something very differently. And that's one part of the cultural piece. Just very quickly, the other part of the cultural piece is clericalism. I do think we don't fully understand pedophilia. We don't fully understand the reasons for it and all kinds of theories have been suggested. But certainly a contributing factor to the cover-up, if not the actual pedophilia, is that sense of entitlement that's known as clericalism. And again, to see bishops having, if you like, to submit themselves to very, very straight talking and seeing the Pope himself time and again identify clericalism as the root of all of this seems to me to be very hopeful. Yeah, going back to the victims, as you mentioned mm. there, it was powerful. I think also um, we maybe thought we couldn't be shocked anymore by revelations. Mm. And yet, from another angle, like you had an African sister mm-hmm saying that she was repeatedly raped by a priest and Mm -hmm. had three abortions. Mm -hmm. You know, in a church that has spoken out about abortion for so many years with Mm -hmm. such vigour and Mm -hmm. rigour, to Mm -hmm. hear that 
but the impact must have been, you, you can only imagine what it must have been like to be sitting there and that was so important that those voices were heard. No, absolutely and again it's this business of getting things out into the open because you can't change things unless that happens and I do think there are many similar issues and when the Pope is talking about a new form of church and trying to put in structures and institutions but also trying to change the culture so that people he's encouraging people to be open and frank in debate and discussion. So very often, sadly, but very understandably, those most opposed to rights for homosexuals, for gay people, are themselves gay. And it's it's a very understandable mechanism that goes on because they've been taught to hate what they are themselves and then they project outwards. You can think of many other issues, including the whole issue of women priests. We can't tackle those issues by keeping silent. And one of the great contributors to the Second Vatican Council, he was a Melkite patriarch at the Nagaras, had that phrase, repressed truth turns poisonous. And it really is. It's like a cancer that eats away. And of course, you can't get to the truth if you can't discuss and if you can't share views. So it seems to me, of course, awful things uh, go on. We're human beings. But the most awful thing is when when they're not admitted, when they're not uh, when there's no possibility of talking about them, and so children continue to suffer and their families continue to suffer. And now there is this awful thing now that the ordinary Catholic in the pew feels shattered by this. I mean, who can they trust? It's just just one thing after another, and I think it is a very painful period to say that you're a Catholic. I mean, I think it's one thing to say I hold on to my faith in Jesus or I'm still religious, but to belong to the church is really a big ask for so many people at the moment. Uh, And yet I think you can see that it's almost a necessary process to go through. It's better than denial. It's better than not doing anything about it. And please, God, uh, as the culture changes and the guidelines are put into effect and the reporting to civil authorities takes place, it will become true that the Catholic Church becomes a very safe place for children. That will not, of course, overnight, and it'll take many generations, for it to regain the trust of so many people. Do you think that mindset is beginning to change among clergy with with the unmasking of clericalism, as Pope Francis is trying to do, that... They have to see the enormity of what the sexual abuse crisis really is and what it has done to ordinary people, not least, of course, the victims and the survivors, but on their families, but just also the faithful people who are really wounded and angry and gutted. Yeah, I do think so. I mean, I I think, again, that the initial reaction, and I know our own situation in Ireland and indeed our own Jesuit situation, The initial reaction was institutional defensiveness. So you look back to the probably the mid to late 80s and into the early 90s, and that was the predominant. And of course, you can see we're doing this interview on the day that the victims in Derry are looking for some kind of redress for Bloody Sunday. And we know that in politics, too, in political life, that that is an institutional reflex, almost that kind of defensiveness. It's no excuse. And certainly, I think that the Catholic Church in Ireland and in in America and in Britain and in Australia has learned a lot. And I think that there's a real sense now. And the main learning, I think, 
has come from the victims and survivors. It's, it's seeing them now as protagonists, not as victims. You cannot be unaffected. I have sat down with people who have been abused. And I was with Pope Francis last August when he came from that meeting with six or eight people who had been abused. And I saw it in his face and I knew what I had felt too. You are shattered when you hear that kind of thing. Shattered. And no amount of reading files or looking at psychological theories can prepare you for that. So I do think that there is a a big, big change going on. And the only thing I'd say is that justice has to be served, both civilly and morally. So there's no doubt about that. But the great scandal, if you like, of the Christian message is that God loves everyone and mercy and there's a peculiar kind of thing in the civil society now, and it's it's also present in all of us, of a kind of vengeful, merciless hounding of people. And in some sense, I remember doing this in my in my theology with people like Balthazar and Rahner and trying to look at, did God want to save everyone? And if you want to hold that there is a hope that everyone will be saved, you have to say that Hitler, that Paul Pot that Stalin, that the paedophile priests, that the bishop who covered up, somehow are covered by the mercy of God. doesn't detract at all from the fact that justice has to be served. And that's, if you like, it's counterintuitive and it's a huge scandal, and yet it's at the core of our Christian faith. And I suppose the only way that I can live with that, I mean, you can try to work it out speculatively, is that I've experienced it myself. I know I'm a sinner. I really do. I know I've done things which are awful. I have avoided doing things which I should have done. I need God's mercy. And I think in the end, that kind of self-awareness is something that helps us, if you like, to see that these awful things have to be condemned, that justice has to be sought. And yet somehow we have to try to put on the mind of Christ, which is the mind of the merciful and tender God who embraces all. And that's a real, real challenge. Yeah, because you referenced the North there and I Mm. worked there myself and you would often see, and I know people will remember listening, people like Gordon Wilson, people Mm. like there were families Mm. who maybe I remember UVF had killed their only son and Mm -hmm. they asked for no revenge, Mm. do Mm -hmm. not take the law into your Mm. own hands, we don't want Mm. somebody else to suffer like us. Mm. So there is something about that profound Mm. Christian human call to Mm. go deeper Mm. Uh, albeit, and as you say, holding mm-hmm. the justice mm-hmm. of it and mm-hmm. the truth of it mm-hmm. being spoken. Mm-hmm. So we heard at that synod the speaking out, and but some of the survivors were disappointed in that nothing they felt too concrete mm-hmm. came from it. Mm-hmm. What are your hopes and what do you say to that? I think that from what I've read, he has instructed or they have instructed the CDF to prepare Uh, guidelines, and I think they are prepared, which would go to the different Episcopal conferences. They also seem to have come up with the idea of a task force, which would probably go out, if you like, from the centre to the different peripheries, the different parts of the world, to make sure that they get the help they need. So it's it's oversight to make sure this is, is actually happening. It's been very clear that they have said that where the rule of law pertains, and of course it's not always the case throughout the world that that is so, that this matter should be immediately reported to the civil authorities. And that seems to me to be absolutely key. I think they probably need more work on canon law to make bishops accountable. 
they have suggestions. Certainly the, the American Supic brought it back um, and he had proposed it that lay people have some oversight over bishops. And I think that's a very healthy thing. And I'd like to see that introduced. Do you think that would ever happen? I think it will. I think it will. I think it will. I mean, in a, a different kind of way, for example, the, the Nolan report in England and independent reports by church authorities have done that through experts and so on. But I think it will. I think, in fact, if you look at the logic of what Francis is talking about, a synodal church in which the voice of the laity is listened to and which there's a share in governance, you, you have to have that interplay. But it isn't yet sufficiently embedded. In fact, it's not at all embedded in canon law and in structures that has to change. And I do think there probably is still a missing piece around the Vatican itself, the files, the accountability of the Vatican. And that needs, I think, that ultimately, as the other pieces get into place, it'll be very hard, but I think that probably needs to be attended to as well. And just as you're speaking about the Vatican and wider uh, field, there is a move by the alt-right in Catholic Mm. circles to blame all this abuse on gay people Mm. and on gay priests in particular Mm. and Mm. the homosexualist Mm. heresy, they're Mm. calling it. Mm -hmm. And whilst they speak very strongly about the horror of child sexual abuse, they're very quick to say it's because of a gay culture. Mm. That, how do you react mm. to that conflation of the two? Mm. Any of the research findings I've looked at wouldn't support that. I think there is a, a sort of circumstantial report in that there's a higher proportion of gay people in the Catholic priesthood than in other institutions, understandably, because of the celibacy thing. Therefore, in terms of opportunity, probably, there is something there. But it strikes me as a kind of demonization of a group of people. And I'd much prefer the first draft of the document on the Synod and the family talked about the need for us to study further sexual orientation and to appreciate the good points that are um, in um, people who are gay. And it seems to me that the more aligned with the remarks I made earlier, the more out of the closet, the more this becomes part of humanity and uh, albeit uh, probably a minority, numerical minority, the more that that's appreciated, the healthier it is and the less uh, gay people themselves are tempted to act out in a more promiscuous kind of way. But I think the actual evidence around that promiscuous way involving pedophilia is, is doesn't seem to me to hold up at all. No, and it would therefore raise questions that you feel that they are taking one issue and using it mm-hmm. to make leverage for mm-hmm. their own thoughts on another issue. Mm-hmm. Final question then, the situation here in Ireland, you've gone around the country, mm-hmm. you're talking to mm-hmm. a lot of people Do you feel that they feel heard and understood about the abuse issue and how it has affected them? Or do you feel it still really is a scandal for them and that they don't feel it has been adequately resolved in any way? The people I meet who are the people who come to church-related events are probably, by and large, felt that they have been heard and that it has been effectively addressed. I think for them... The big issue is that it's left a legacy of mistrust, of lack of credibility from church authorities. That's going to take a long time to heal. And I think for them, curiously enough, the deeper issue is secularisation or secularism. The fact that they can see 
that their children and their grandchildren in particular are very, very good people, often have very high ideals, big into social justice, big into saving the earth. And whatever about looking to spirituality and even at times looking to Jesus, they don't look to the church. So for that generation, it's almost as if the church has been discredited. So that's what I hear from people who are coming to these talks. I suspect there's a lot of other people who've already left the church and people who, if you like, see the church very much as something that's very negative, that that's also true. But the people I meet are people who are hanging in and who... Curiously enough, and yet absolutely correctly, see this as a wonderful time of opportunity, that all that kind of power and trappings and authoritarianism of the past and of the very recent past is crumbling before our very eyes. And they rejoice in that. And at the same time, they know that something has to be built up and they're willing to hang in and put their little bit into the rebuilding. And it seems to me that that's a more hopeful way forward. And I just want to ask you one more question because it, it's one that I think would strike a lot of people. You mentioned earlier about it's difficult to be a Catholic nowadays. Mm. Why should somebody stay in the institutional church if they can say, look, I'll say my prayers, mm. I will have a deep spirituality, mm. I'll read my gospel, mm. I'll do all that, mm. but I cannot continue to align myself with this institution given all that has happened and the Mm. slow rate of change. Mm. What would you say to somebody Mm. like that, Mm. the importance of an institution? Yeah, I I do think that it's a very modern thing, if you like. I was listening to a programme this morning on authenticity on, on BBC Radio 4. We've become very used to being individuals and even being authentic individuals. But there's something there that's absolutely true, of course, that we have to be true to ourselves. But if the f- emphasis is all the time on me, it misses out something very important. We are deeply social creatures. We're in communities. We're in institutions. And whether it's the GAA or a political party, that's the way we organise our lives together. And Jesus knew that. And, and, and so Jesus gathered his group of 12, his group of 70, his much wider group of men and women who, who came uh, along with him. And it seems to me there is a, this great risk and and very understandable risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The church has done terrible things right through history. And yet when you think of the wonderful thinking that has gone on, the resources of prayer, the wonderful sacrifices that people make in terms of charity and justice, the resources in terms of retreats, just the wisdom that's there, that's still present in people and in pockets of people. And What we're really called to do is to make our institutions embody the values of the gospel. And each of us has a role there. And it seems to me, Brendan Callan, who's a British uh, psychologist, says a very good thing here. He says, the whole thing of clericalism had benefits both for the clergy and for the laity. So the benefits for the clergy were clear. It was a position of superiority. The benefits for the laity were a kind of saying all right to just being on the fence, if you like. You didn't have to take responsibility. You didn't have to take a role. And you could even bask in the glory of seeing all these cardinals together and so on. That's all gone, clearly now. But obviously the response can be, I walk away from it completely. Or I recognise that as social creatures, in whatever we do, we do it together. So whether it's just at a family level or at a local community or as a spiritual person. And it seems to me there will always be room for individuals, for prophets and so on. But 
It's carried in the end by institutions, and institutions, of course, are always faulty, but they can be much better if ordinary people, authentic people, join and work for their reform, and I think that's what's happening now.